Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. Welcome to church. So glad you're here. And um, we are not in a series right now, which becomes a series all of itself. I know once in a while I wear glasses. Once in a while I wear a jacket. For some of you, that's weird. Um, the jacket, well, I can start with my eyes. Um, I went to the eye doctor this past week. I found out that my long vision went down two clicks on the dial, or three clicks in one eye, two clicks on the other, and my near vision also went two clicks the opposite direction. So my wife laughed at me when I came back. It's, well, it's, it's like a grand total of six and five in, in each eye, so apparently I'm going blind. Um, no, not, not at all. I just have hard time seeing people across the room. And uh, welcome to your 40s. That's what begins to happen as you age and get older. The reason I'm wearing a jacket, though, is so some of you take me a lot more seriously today. Uh, because I am going to give, uh, give our church um, our stance on women in ministry and what that looks like and why we, have, uh, why we arrive at that, biblically speaking. And so some of you, this might trigger you. And I'm sorry if it offends your little ears. I don't really care. Um, and maybe, just maybe, you will allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you this morning and, um, and, and maybe, maybe just bring some new understanding to what we actually see in the New Testament, to what we see in the book of Acts, to what we see in the whole counsel of God's word rather than just a, a couple, two, three verses. Now, I know for 95 or 99 even percent of people maybe sitting in our church this morning, for you, this isn't a personal, personal issue, but I, wanted, I, wanted, I want you to understand I have seen people leave our church in the past couple years over the issue of us permitting women to preach or even do announcements. And I have dear, dear friends in ministry where I just watched their church split because a few elders decided that, hey, that's not biblical, this isn't right, we're going this way. And I watched divisive men split the church completely in two. That church is in shambles. My friends who are the pastors of the church are absolutely worn out and devastated by it. And I, I just, I'm so frustrated by these things because it's, it's all for nothing. And scripture actually does address these things. It's just people have to forsake some of their ideology and, and receive what, what I would call from the Holy Spirit a heavenly culture rather than an earthly culture. And um, at the same time, I appreciate the stance of those who would say, we don't want women running around and acting like men and running roughshod over and not, not respecting authority. And, and, and I mean, so there's always two sides to this, but be, because of the turmoil that I see and because of the conversations I've had to have over the last couple of years, um, it's, it's just time. It's time to have this conversation with our church. And it's going to lead to a question which is, well, then what do you believe the church is, which we're going to talk about next week. And so even though it's not in a series, it kind of ended up being a mini-series last week to this week and now to next week. And um, the week after that, by the way, uh, Pastor Frank Satius will be with us for an exciting weekend called Ignite. You want to make note of that. You want to pray out for that. Maybe you should even fast and pray. We're going to hear from God. It's going to be a great time. So uh, the title of the message today is Women Up Front which I ran by several people because in my attempt to be inclusive of women in the past, I have said some wildly inappropriate things apparently. <laughs> and some of you um, will, will be gracious to me and not bring those up or not like retweet them or find a, please Jesus help me, don't find a reel and actually play that back 
Um, that would be, we, don't, we just don't need that. Um, I do a lot of things in innocence, and my foot does go into my mouth, and it goes farther and farther and farther in, and I don't know how to stop sometimes. So I, I ran it by women up front. There's nothing offensive about that. There's nothing weird or overt about that. It's just, it is what it is. We're talking about women standing at the front of the assembly of God's people. And so I just want to get this out of the way. There are verses in the Bible that are read and understood to teach that women should be silent in the church. Women should be silent in the church. Many take that to be literal, and by literal they say a woman must not teach in the, in the church or be in a position of authority in the church. But they don't actually take that literally, in my personal observation, conversation with many people like this, and um, they allow women to, to speak and to talk and to visit. They allow women to sing. They will allow women to work in kids' ministry. They will allow women to do all those sorts of things, but they, 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 when it comes to certain things, it's all to said, no, women should be silent, women shouldn't be in authority. And, uh, well, there's problems with that. There's, a, there's, a, there's, there's eyewitness account problems with that all through the New Testament. So um, some, of these, some of these churches and even some of the ladies who have, these, who have ministries, this is how weird it gets, is, is I've actually, I know women who, who, who will say, well, it's not right for a woman even to do announcements in a church, yet off to the side, they have a platform on social media, or they're holding conferences, and they're teaching a thousand women, which again, I don't have a problem with, but it's the contradiction of when and where and why and how, and, and why would you make this a rule for the public assembly on Sunday morning and only Sunday morning, and why would you let anything you want happen on the other hand? Um, it's weird. Some of these churches will allow women to speak at Bible camps, and, and you know, I, I don't have words. It actually exasperates me because of the contradiction and, and, in some cases, the absolute hypocrisy of it. So <laughs> this one gets me. Churches that won't permit a woman to preach on Sunday morning will release a woman to be a missionary in a foreign Muslim country just, just think about the irony of that for, for, for a moment. Let's send a single, uncovered woman into a traditional culture where women are to be subjugated and held down, and, and let's call that a ministry and a mission field, and there's nothing wrong with it because it doesn't violate this pretense that we have that women are supposed to be silent and not in authority in the body of Christ. And so, um, now I, I understand right away and there are going to be people who watch this online, and, and there are going to be people who take issue, and I might hear from you, I might not, whatever. Um, I understand that I am making some generalizations here. And I don't believe that everyone has this view outside of our church, and, and, and I certainly hope that you, you know that already, and you would believe that to be true as well. Um, it's, just, it's just weird that we let ladies do all these things, but just not in a pulpit on Sunday morning. And people are leaving churches over this issue. In fact, I've been so worked up about this. Our office staff had to deal with me this week because I was, you know, I was writing and working on the message. I'd come downstairs because I just needed a mental breather because I'm pouring through Scripture. And I'm just like, I'm so frustrated. Why do we even have to have these conversations? It's ridiculous. And you know, they're like, just calm down, Pastor Trav. It's going to be okay. And I'm not so sure it's going to be okay because I'm really worked up. I was so worked up that 2.30 this morning, I got up and got out of bed and went down and sat with my notes. And then finally at uh, 4, I went back to bed and then got up again at 6.15 and went back to my notes. 
And then I came here and went back to my notes and missed all the meetings and missed prayer this morning. Um, because I really feel like I cannot, this is the leading of the Holy Spirit in me as the leader of our church, I cannot, I cannot hold back some of my daughters and some of our daughters in the faith from being everything God has called them to be. It's not right. We can't do it that way. There are those, and some of our very dear friends of mine, that believe that taking these kinds of steps is what leads to immorality in the church. Like if we permit, if we permit women to be in the pulpit, then the next thing will be ordaining gay ministers and things like that. And to me, that's, that's ludicrous. That's, that, I don't understand how someone can jump to those kinds of conclusions because certainly the Bible is clear on what is sin and what is not sin, and we get all tangled up in this religion. I'm going to cover some of this as we go. But I am saddened by the fact that it splits churches, that it is ruining relationship. And um, I just feel like, you know what, we have a more important work to do than, than, than haggle back and forth over some of these things. So, so let's, just, let's just dive right into it. I'm going to try to honor that clock up there uh, and honor your time. Uh, but I have a lot of notes, so you'll forgive me, I hope. 2 Timothy 12, 8 to 15, and this is one of the most common verses, one of the most common passages uh, that, that is used. And so here's what it says, 2 Timothy 12, 8 to 15. Please take notes. I'm going to throw a lot of Bible at you today, and it would be really beneficial for you to go back, listen again, read yourself, read the chapters before and after, get the full context, get every flavor you can from the Bible, from these scriptures. L learn how to read the Greek. You can use a lexicon. There's online tools to help you see Greek words and what they mean and how they apply to English. There's, there's so many tools out there. Okay. So it says, therefore, verse 8, therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or dispute. Interesting. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or expensive apparel, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must, receive, or must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Hey, that's kind of the big, verse 12 is kind of the, the, the big one. Sorry, what, so what did you say? So we're in chapter 12. Chapter 2. Oh, sorry, I have a 1 in front of a 2 in my notes. All right. We're, we're going to catch up with that. I'm sorry, media team. Once again, I'm apologizing to our media team. Um, so we're in chapter 2. I apologize. But I not allow a woman to be over man to exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. But women will be preserved through childbirth if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with moderation. Okay. So that is a really common, old school way of, of viewing women and their place in a church. So the irony here, um, and this is... This is this is actually a true observation for me. I have rarely, as in I almost, I almost never see the men who run around touting this passage lift up holy hands. A lot of them are cessationists, which means they don't believe that, that the Jesus of the New Testament is still the same Jesus today in that he gives gifts to his church, that the Holy Spirit performs signs and wonders through believers. They kind of abandon all that. But this is a crazy one because the whole lifting of hands is very much seems like a command. And I just... I struggle with, with people saying things about women, but then they stand there like stone statues in worship and in prayer. Um, and then, of course, 
being without anger or dispute, some of these gentlemen are some of the most disruptive and angry people I have ever met when it comes to talking about doctrine. So I'm willing to make the generalization because in my personal observation, in my personal experience, this is exactly what I have seen. Now again, it's not everybody, it's not all. Um, just so you guys know, one of my very best friends in this whole world is a Calvinist. And we never have to argue about faith or doctrine. We're friends. He's a mature guy. I'm a mature guy, mostly mature guy. And, and so, so the fact that he's a Calvinist doesn't bother me, and the fact that I'm not a Calvinist doesn't bother me, and there's certainly things we agree on, there's certainly things we disagree on, and even some of those things we would disagree on would be his viewpoints on women in ministry. But it's not something that comes between us in relationship. And, and there's a maturity that is in that, and when you encounter people who, who want to cause dispute and raise a ruckus over issues like this, you will almost assuredly always see a significant amount of immaturity. And so just be on your guard. You have, to, you have to see people through the eyes of Jesus with the love of Jesus and understand that we're all in a process. So over these past years, as I've shared, I've seen a lot of dissension and strife stirred up, bitterness in the body of Christ. And, and the Bible does say that God actually hates one who sows discord between the brothers. Like, like God is not happy about these arguments in his body, you guys. And so, so we, need to, we need to take a different approach, at least in how we see one another when we disagree, so that anger, dissension, um, discord are not the fruits, because those aren't fruits of the Spirit. At least they're not fruits of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're the fruits of another spirit, um, but th that spirit does not testify to Jesus, that's for sure, right? Um, so I, I've, seen, I've seen this type of men, some with very large platforms, absolutely slander other men and other women in ministry in a very public way. I think that's an embarrassment to the body of Christ. Um, I have seen men who hold this view, literally, who are abusive to their wives. And, you, you know, you, you can say, well, Pastor Travis, it sounds like you're the slanderer now. Well, I'm, no, I'm not committing slander. First of all, I'm not naming names. And, and I'm not making a personal accusation against anyone. It's just an observation. That this is what we see. I've even seen some of these men who hold this passage the way they do commit adultery. And it's like, well, that's just not an example that I can follow. It's not a doctrine that I can agree with based in the fruit and the evidence of someone else's walk with Christ. So women should, uh, let's come to this verse. Um, uh, uh, verse 11, women should receive teaching with a submitted heart and attitude. That's the way one translation says it. Yes, they should. And so should we all. You, you should, men, you should hear what your pastor says with a submitted heart and a submitted attitude. Be because I'm a man in authority who is also very much under authority. And, and that was one of Jesus' favorite people, by the way, the Roman centurion who said, uh, just say the word and my daughter will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority. And, and Jesus says, what? You have great faith. You're an absolute rock star in the faith. This is a, you're, you are an amazing man of faith. And so understanding authority is important, and, and we are all under authority. We are all submitted to authority in Christ. And we're all submitted in different places and times to each other in our different roles. There are times when I'm absolutely submitted to the elders of our church. There are times when they submit to my way of seeing or doing things. This is how it's supposed to work together, like a family, like a body. So, in fairness, not all the men who hold these doctrines are this way, but I have dealt with many, and it's just, it's just a, it's a heartbreak for me. So, um, and then we come to this part that, uh, that for me, I've always relatively easily understood because I noticed that there was a difference in 
the language. Um, and that would be in verse 12 where it says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. But I, Paul, do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over the man. And I, I actually deal with, I, I agree with that. Some of you are going to be a little shocked by that. Well, what do you mean, Pastor Trout? What, what could you possibly mean? I actually agree with that. For the sake of protecting the hearts of men, I think there are places where a woman absolutely should not be in authority over a man. Now, protect your sensitive ears, but it would be re really uncomfortable and inappropriate if Pastor Amy was sitting there and giving instruction to a man about his addiction to pornography and masturbation. Right? Like, that, that's weird. That would be hard. That would be weird and, and difficult and awkward. And in the same way, I actually don't want to have to go and pastor women in the issues that relate very intimately and significantly to being a woman because I have no clue. I was raised with three brothers and my dad and my poor mother. I have no idea. For the first 21 years, and we've been married for 21 years, for the first 21 years of our marriage, I have not known what to do with my wife because I don't understand women. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not a good women's pastor. And women are not good men's pastors. Because we're different, and that's the very best part about being different. That the girls aren't dudes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, thank you, Jesus, that she's different than me. So I would, oh man, bad things would happen if I was married to myself. Let me tell you, it would be bad. So I agree. I, I do agree with that. And the way we've often said this in our church over the years is, is, is we don't allow a woman to be authority, in authority over men in the issues of a man. It's, it's, just, it's just kind of a logical conclusion that we come to. And you say, well, how can you do that in that one verse? It's actually not in that one verse. It's in the context of all the other verses of like the whole Bible and all the other places where it speaks to these kinds of issues. So... Um, The, the, the Probably the more interesting part even than that, though, is still that this idea that Paul seems to offer his, his practice and his preference. What do I mean by that? Well, I do not permit is a language similar to what Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and these are connected very much in terms of, of uh, context, but I just, I just want to show you because it's dealing with the order of men and women and how they got to work together. So 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 12 says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So Paul, what we see in, in, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 7, is he differentiates between what is a command from the Lord and what is a commission from his practice. I don't allow this to happen. And it would be like me saying to you guys, well, in our house, our kids don't get Snapchat. But we don't make a rule about that as a church. Although, another preach for another time, I would like us as a church to ban Snapchat from all the lives of all of our teenagers, young adults, and even grown-ups. Okay. It's just, it's, 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 man, I've I have had to tangle with people in that app over the last little while, and it is, there are horrible, evil, demonic, terrible things going on in there. It's, it's terrible. And I don't want to sound like, 
you know, that 1950s preacher who's like, rock and roll music is bad. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be that guy for sure, but I mean, there's just so much. It's a culture war going on around us, and we got to focus in on the right things because we need every member of this army to report for duty. So I think Paul is very clear in this language in 1 Corinthians, and you have to understand because this is an ongoing relationship. Every letter that Paul wrote is in response to an issue, presumably a letter already written to him that he's responding to. So there's questions being asked, and he's offering answers, and this is the inspired word of God. It's, I, just a side note that I think this is really cute. Notice that the questions are not the inspired word of God. And some of you think sometimes that your question is inspired, and you, you act like the question is like as godly as the Bible can be. That's not the way it worked in the New Testament church either. The question was carnal. The question was from the perspective of people. The answer was divine. Just, just, you can throw that one into the side bank somewhere. It'll, it'll work good for you somewhere down the road, I'm sure. All right. Um, so one is from the Lord. One is from Paul himself. What does that mean? Paul is speaking subjectively as an authority rather than objectively in Christ's authority. Do you understand the difference? You can speak subjectively as a person in authority. So, son, I really don't think what you're doing is wise. That would be subjectively in a position of authority. But then there's also uh, what, what we would, every single time it should be this way, that if someone were to prophesy, what are they saying? They're actually speaking objectively in authority that comes from Jesus. And that's what a prophet does. That's what a preacher is supposed to do. That's what a teacher is supposed to do. And so you have to understand the nuance of those differences when you read the Scripture because it actually matters a lot. It matters that Paul might not be saying something as absolute as you think when he says it. That he's actually offering an instruction, a helpful concession rather than a command. And that, by the way, is exactly what we see in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 6. I didn't include it, but Paul literally says, I say this by way of concession, not of command. Huge difference between those two things. Why? Well, because the letter is in response to a question or problem being encountered in the early church. And it doesn't make it less important today. It doesn't write it off. It doesn't take one, one little anything of God's power away from his word to understand that the early church was going through some things that hopefully this church isn't going through. Hello? Like you would think after 2,000 years of the presence of Jesus dwelling, manifesting in his people with signs of wonders following, not all of it glorious, but, you know, we had some hiccups. But you would think after 2,000 years we were starting to get a few things right. I hope. So it's not a stretch to say in 2 Timothy, Paul is doing something very similar to that. The language suggests that he is. And so... Uh, it's not a stretch to consider that the problem was presented and Paul is addressing that problem in response. And we know this by that language. And he says even in, in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, now concerning the issue you wrote me about. Okay, there's your biblical evidence that this is, this is a divine response to man's question about what do we do about this? Like we've got a bunch of rowdy women wrecking the church service. And I, I kind of say this laughingly, but then you should tell them to be quiet and submit. And, and maybe they needed to. Maybe it was... The, see, there's, there's Bible teachers who will say that you cannot 
you can't, you're not allowed to mess around with culture. Like, you can't make an excuse in Scripture because the culture doesn't matter. Like, yes, the culture matters. Yeah, it does. Jewish culture matters a great deal to Christianity. Its influence and its value are irreplaceable. Its theology, its doctrine is irreplaceable because everything in that Old Testament, everything in the Torah, everything in the Pentateuch, everything that God, not everything in the Torah, but everything in the Pentateuch, was prophesying, was speaking, and looking ahead to when Jesus would come. It's all important. It's all valuable. It's all necessary. But the way we apply that matters. It's a sword of the Spirit that's to be used skillfully, not like a hack machete. Have you ever watched somebody who has no idea how to fillet a fish? Have you ever watched them do it for the first time? It's an absolute disaster. And so many children of God handle the word the same way. Well, I got this verse. <laughs> yeah, you got the guts out of the fish. And that's about all. Um, consider that in this passage, Paul also says, it was the woman who was the wrongdoer. Did you catch that? For it was woman who was deceived and became the wrongdoer. But then in, in the book of Romans, Paul points out that sin entered the world through one man. So is Paul wrong? No, he's not wrong. In fact, I don't think anywhere in Scripture is Paul wrong. Some of you are going to struggle with that, but you're saying he's wrong. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm saying our understanding of what he said is misinterpreted. Yes. We're not getting it. We're not, we're not getting the whole context, and therefore we're making a wrong judgment call in large part because we don't acknowledge the Holy Spirit every time we open the Word of God. So, <laughs> Paul's not wrong, but he does say that sin entered the world through one man, and that would actually, in a way, contradict with what you're reading in, in 2 Timothy. So, what are we to do with this? Well, after a lot of study, what I have come to, and what many of my peers have come to, not not grabbing a filleting knife for the first time, but having gone to Bible college, having spent many, many, many years of our lives reading and stewing and saturating ourselves in the Word of God, praying it through, asking God, Lord, how do we resolve this? By the way, when you're reading the Scripture and you come to a problem, you would be amazed how many times when you just stop and say, Lord, I don't understand. Help me resolve this. How many times He will enlighten you and He'll bring another Scripture to mind and you'll be like, oh, well, that makes a lot more sense. Don't ever be a one-verse wonder. It'll only get you and other people into trouble. You have to interpret Scripture by Scripture. You have to consider the whole counsel of God's Word for every verse in God's Word. Okay? And that sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. If it was easy 2,000 years ago, we probably would have needed, what, 15 minutes to get the whole world saved? Jesus, come on back. We're already done. It's not that easy. So after a lot of study... <laughs> I see that Paul is giving a specific instruction for a very specific issue, and that issue may or may not be present in our church. It may or may not be present in our church. And if it's not present in our church, it's, it's like, I, I know people in ministry too, whatever their marriage struggles with, they think everybody else is struggling with. They actually broadcast their sin and assumption onto other people. That is not healthy. It's actually really toxic. Amy and I had, were fighting pretty good here a couple weeks ago. You know what? I did not assume that every single family in the church was fighting. That would be unhealthy and toxic for me to do that. 
And neither when things are good do I just assume, well, if we're good, everybody else is good. That's stupid. That's not a way to think that's healthy. All right? So it, it, in any case, the passage is useful like all passages. 2 Timothy 3.16, and again, can you get your head around the fact that Paul is saying what he needs to say to address an issue? And I don't know whether Paul in the moment knew, like just think about this with me creatively. Did Paul know that he was writing the inspired word of God? I think to some extent, absolutely. Did he know it would be canonized? I don't think he did. Like, I really don't think Paul's like, I'm writing this and it will be translated into this many languages and the King James is going to be really hard for people who stick with it in the, in the 2000s. You know, like all the, I, I, that, that, of course that's not a part of his thinking. He's just serving Jesus. But here's what he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Just hear this. I didn't put it on the screen. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay? Here's one more little poke, I guess, that the servant of God doesn't specify men. In lots of places, the Bible does appear to specify men. But not here just that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we already know, because I say it most Sundays, that God prepared for you good works, that you would walk in him in Jesus. Men and women. All right, so that's the first verse. Um, that my, I am not attempting to reason you out of that verse with that argument. That's not what I'm presenting here. I'm just saying here's some contrary ways of thinking about that to get you to the right place. So the second very commonly used is actually uh, 1 Corinthians 14. I better get my spell checker to make sure I put the right reference down for everybody. 1 Corinthians 4. I'm going to assume that I did okay on this one. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 36. Here's what it says. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but are, are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? So here's the question. Does Paul literally mean what he just said? Now, that's not fair to context, because I've taken, uh, what is it, three verses. And so right away, it's not fair to context, but I will assure you that this is the context that most people would read it in. Um, is he making an emphatic statement, end of communication? And I don't see that that's what's happening here at all. Uh, and by the way, neither do most churches. Even the most ardent, no women in ministry type churches, they actually, they actually don't follow that through either to the letter of the law, if it were the letter of the law. Interestingly, he does refer to the law in this. So, as I mentioned earlier, women are permitted to be missionaries, children's teachers. Uh, certainly nobody minds if they're making coffee or if they're, you know, making food or like all those things. Um, Jesus, by the way, said, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, be the servant of all. So maybe we have something to learn from that, gentlemen. When, you, when we stand there and let the ladies, you know, well, that's ladies stuff. Speaking to my son, Logan, mostly when I say that. <laughs> just, I'm just teasing. He's such a good man. He's a great guy. Um, so so, here, so here's, here's something interesting even. Some, some manuscripts actually take verses 34 and 35 and place them after verse 40. Now, I'm sorry. If you're a brand new baby Christian here this morning, some of this is going to be like whoosh, way over your head. Don't worry about it. Um, 
we can come back and have some conversations, but I'm, I'm mostly trying to deal with really religious thinking people here, probably not you. Um, so not most, tri- not most manuscripts, but some, a significant amount of manuscripts say, and it makes sense because uh, those two verses specific to women kind of just jump in there and then it comes back to the boys again. And so it's a little bit weird and out of place. Nonetheless, um, Paul, Paul argues something here, makes, makes, appears to make an argument here that women somehow are in, in, in needing to be subject to the law should be silent in the church. Well, first of all, there is actually nothing in the law which we would understand immediately to be the first five books of the Bible. Nowhere does it say women need to be silent in the assembly. Never says it. So is Paul wrong? No, I've already told you. I don't think Paul is ever wrong. I really don't. I think that we misunderstand the context and we're, and we're not thinking about the, the questions and the connected issues in the culture to why he needed to say the things that he says. Um, here, here, let me try to read this for you in a way that maybe will help you understand it better. From the Greek, women should hold their peace in the body of Christ gathering of believers. They should stop chattering and restrain themselves and ask their questions at home because it's really basic for women to chatter in church. Now that is the Travis Hansen transliteration, for sure. But that's the language the Greek is pulling at. The word, the word speak in the church, it, literally they're going after this word to chatter, to murmur. Okay? Everybody who has a teenage daughter understands what these moments can be like. Don't need to ask you to come forward, raise your hand, bow your eyes, bow your head, nothing like that, right? We, we understand chatter. And I'm not saying that even in a derogatory way, please. Women should restrain themselves. Women should be silent. Actually, would be better translated. Women need to hold their peace. And again, I'm not going to take anything away from Paul as a theologian. When Paul says... As, is, as it is in the law. Well, what, what could he be meaning? Because Paul also wrote in Romans 6.14 that we're not under the law but under grace. So how can he place women under the law when he said none of us are under the law but under grace? Well, he can't. I don't think Paul's wrong. I actually don't think he's contradicting himself. I think we're misunderstanding what it is he's trying to say to this issue in that church and potentially that issue in our church. So here's maybe what was happening. And this was my education in Bible college. In the Roman world, the Greek culture of the day, some of you might be surprised to hear this, but women did not have an elevated status. Women did not have an elevated status in the Roman or the Greek culture of the early church. Not at all. They were abused. They were held down. They were oppressed. They were made to be slaves. They were used and considered to be property. It was not healthy. It was extremely toxic. It was not cool. That's what, the, that's what it was to be a woman in the days that Jesus was walking the earth. And something profound happened when the church was born. Some of you aren't going to believe this, but I'm going to tell you it's historical fact that in the moment the church was born, the status of women across the world began to elevate. And for the last 2,000 years, wherever the church has gone, not... Not the church, little c, not the imitation church, but wherever people who love and follow Jesus with all their heart have gone, 
who have preached the gospel, capital G, preached the real good news about Jesus, it has actually elevated the status of women. They got freer. They got more respect. They had more opportunity because of what Jesus has done. So, many theologians have come to this same place. Uneducated women, for the first time ever, allowed to come to church. Women weren't allowed in the Jewish synagogues. Women weren't allowed into certain areas in, in Roman and Greek culture. Women weren't allowed into the man meetings at the city gate. All of this is culturally, it's, it's cultural history. You can read it for yourself. You can look it up and find it and, and do your own homework on it. I'm fine with that. I don't want to spoon feed all of this to you. And so many theologians have come to the place that as these, these women, new to faith, new to all this information, were sitting in church and not sitting in church. Because you can imagine what it's like to be a mom, because some of you are moms, and some of you are about to be moms, and it is one of the most tumultuous, crazy, busy times of life. But for those of you who don't know, Pastor Amy and I, we planted the church, and we also, in the middle of all that, had four children in five years. It was fun. It's busy being a mom. It's like really busy being a mom to four toddlers. And you can just imagine sitting in church for the first time, never been allowed before. Women weren't permitted in these gatherings. And now they're sitting there, and the Apostle Paul comes to preach, or the pastor stands up, or the prophet stands up, and, and, and there's this revelation being given. And these women, some of them who wouldn't even be allowed to read at this point, are saying, what does that mean? What is he talking about? And if right now I asked everyone, let, actually, let's do this. Without offending anybody, I would like every woman for three, just three, let's do five seconds. Every woman in this church, I want you for five seconds to ask your husband, what the heck is Trav talking about? Okay, you're out loud. We're going to do this. Because I, I want you to understand biblically in the Greek what chatter must have sounded like. Are you ready? You're going to... You're going to say, what the heck is Pastor Trav talking about? Whatever else, you can even insult me because I won't be able to hear it because it'll just be a big chatter, right? Okay, so here we go. You're going to ask in five, four, three, two, one, go. You guys are terrible chatterers. Now add to that children running around in the back of church just like they do here. And also, because women were doing all of the cooking in that culture of that day, that they're running in and out of the service, checking on the soup pot, because churches were happening in people's backyards, homes, upon the tops of their houses, on the roof. And they're changing diapers, and they're, and they're nurse and not pampers people. They didn't have a diaper genie at the church nursery. They were using, I don't know, leaves and cloth and who knows what else. And they're in and out of church. And all this great theology is coming. It's the early church and all this revelation. They go, what the heck is he talking about? Well, Timothy, he keeps on screaming. He's teething. And, and, and Juliana, she won't listen because, because she's fighting with her brother. And I'm trying to get... It. It's busy being a mom. And don't you think for a second that that takes anything away from women? Not in the least. Just imagine... What that would be like to have church in that chaos. And I am convinced that that is the context of the early church that Paul is writing to. Because he goes on to say, let them, let them be taught at home. In other words, hey, 
I know you missed a bunch of it, but we, we all understand this, gentlemen. When you're watching a movie and you are married to a habitual movie sleeper, right? You're watching, things are good, you're holding hands, you're thinking about, hey, we're going to go to bed after this, and I'm being romantic, and this counts as a date, having popcorn, and then all of a sudden you hear that very beautiful snoring sound beside you. And she's out, she's asleep. And then inevitably what happens about 30 seconds later, <gasps> she wakes up. And what does she say? What did I miss? What happened? Who's, what, how did he, who, and now what are, man, what are we all like? We're like, woman? <laughs> Stay awake and let me watch the dang movie. I imagine that the men were not very good about this either. Not something we ever talk about. I imagine the men were pretty frustrated at times. The men were struggling at times. I think it was a lot of chaos. And this is why everywhere you see Paul talking about women and what they can or can't do in church, it always falls into the greater context of organization in the church. How to make sure you can get through the day together and have something accomplished. If you don't believe me, go study it. I've spent a lifetime studying it. Well, half of my lifetime. Nah, two-thirds to three-quarters of my lifetime. It's hard to keep track of how old we get. So, listen. Passages about order in the church. And that means, why, why do we need order in the church? Because there's distraction in the church. There's things happening that may or may not be okay. There's things happening that might be good, that might be bad. You've got a bunch of people. In the early church, here's the things that were going on. A dude was having an affair with his father's wife in church. And not like at church that day. But this was the, this was the living arrangement going on. This 25-year-old this dude is sleeping with his, I don't know, 50-year-old stepmother. This was literally happening in the church. And you say it's as simple as women should be silent. No! They were a bunch of hedonists, a bunch of pagans who had just come to Jesus. Some of them didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Guys, the early church was not exactly organized. And these verses are about bringing some organization and some structure for the protection of people in the church so it could develop and be healthy and not toxic. People don't like that approach, I know. Some people don't. Uh, they might even call me a heretic. But let me tell you this. If you can't use your imagination when you read the Scripture, you will never understand God's Word. You won't. Because God's Word is actually written to engage your imagination. Well, how do you know that? Why else would God supply Jonah with a whale to save him? Right? Because if, if he was... Our God is a logical God. He reigns. <laughs> His ways are higher ways than ours, and His thoughts are higher thoughts than ours. Yes. Right? And so the fact that God does something like, Jonah, you're going to rebel against me. Here's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to bring a storm against your life, and the storm's going to be so bad that your shipmates are going to throw you right off the boat. And when they throw you right off the boat, what I'm going to do is supply, because my God shall supply for all my need according to His glorious riches. I'm going to supply a great big fish. Was it a whale? Was it a tuna? I don't know. I don't really care. What I do know is that Jesus believed it was literal. He said, for as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be in the grave. Okay? So Jesus believed it was literal. Argue with Jesus. But I love the creativity of God and how he wants to engage our imagination. Because you know what the whale did after it swallowed Jonah up? 
Jonah repented. He had his, his business with God. Anybody want to guess where that whale spit Jonah out? On the road to Nineveh. Right back where he started from, because you really can't screw up God's purposes for your life. I mean, you can if you try hard enough, but I don't believe any of you are trying that hard. So I'm convinced. I'm convinced by what I read in the Scripture. I'm convinced by what the Holy Spirit leads in my imagination of the Scripture. Do I build doctrine on what I imagine? Absolutely not. That would be crazy. That's how you get cults forming. That's how you get, that's, I mean, that's how you get a planet called Colab and marrying and impregnating virgins for all of eternity. I, I mean, there's just, there's just, you get 10 gold stars if you know what religion I'm talking about. Um, tell me after church. That's how it gets weird. Because imagination is not the grounding of the Word of God. The Word of God is the grounding and your process, the mind that God gave you, that part of you that God designed to engage with him. You say, well, no, pastor, it's just our spirit. That's what engages with the Bible. Nope, that's not true. Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God wants to speak to your brain, people. Yes. He wants to engage your prefrontal cortex. That part of you that reasons and thinks and imagines and dreams for more. That's why Jesus used parables. The kingdom of heaven is like. That's why he talks to us about being sheep. Because we imagine that and it's hard for us. You can't understand God's word without some imagination. Now, I say these are the reasons I'm convinced, but now I want to give you the real reason I'm convinced. And I'm going to try to wrap this up. I'm convinced that women are vital and necessary as a part of the family of God. Every family needs a mom. Every family needs a dad. And when those two positions are out of balance, it's unhealthy. But what is a man and a woman coming together? We know that to be the sacrament of marriage. And what is marriage supposed to reveal to us? It reveals Jesus and his love affair with his church his pure and spotless bride that he's coming back for. Men and women both, the Bible says, words of Jesus, are created in the image of God. And I know that there are parts of me that don't bear the image of God the way my wife's makeup bears the image of God. And that is by design. That is God's purpose revealed in the process of marriage and those of you who are married understand that marriage is absolutely a process, isn't it? Jesus said the two become one flesh. So, First Corinthians 11, written by Paul. That same Paul wrote First Corinthians, as you may be able to guess, wrote First Corinthians 14. You're with me? The same guy wrote the whole book. The same guy, by the way, is the theological giant of the New Testament canon. He clearly acknowledges women praying and prophesying in the church. We're going to get there here. He takes the approach of how one is honored and dishonored in the church. 
Nowhere here is there a prohibition on women from encouraging or speaking in the congregation or to God. But Paul does say something I think many people might miss. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, we say this is a big chunk of Scripture. Let me just stop and pray, actually. Father, I just ask right now that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see things in your word we've never seen before. That you would bring to our remembrance what Jesus taught, that you'd bring to remembrance other passages of Scripture right now, at this moment. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16 says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. There's one word that I really want you to pay attention to. Can you guess what it is? Traditions, just as I passed on to you. But I want you to, now listen to the rest of this in context. He's passing traditions. Now listen. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image of the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. And all the authoritarian males go, wait a second, what just happened? The woman has authority over her own head. Interesting. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man. Listen carefully. Nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also a man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. The war of the sexes should not even be in the church. It shouldn't. And don't think for a second that talking about women's heads shaved or women's hair long, don't think that that is just literal in its application. It's speaking to spiritual. It's speaking to principle. Verse 14. Sorry, verse 13. Now, now this is important too. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does, it, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace for him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So here's what I want you to take away from that. First of all, we are better together. Man and woman, husband and wife, better together. Paul's writing contains huh, so much wisdom, all of its wisdom. It's the inspired word of God. And the problem is how we choose to interpret it sometimes. He ends this thought 
and I think that many, many people miss this, if you desire to be contentious about this, to some of my friends in the ministry who have actually split churches apart over this issue, I just, I wish that, I wish that they would come to that. Verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious of this, Paul says, we just don't have any other practice, nor do any of the churches. It's not a hill to live or to die on. And it matters in the context and culture that a church exists and ministers and reaches out to. What men and women do or don't do. When I was a teenager, 18 years old, turned 18 I think when I was with YWAM, I can't remember now. But I went to Guinea, West Africa, Muslim nation. And back in the day, there was a worship leader called Bob Fitz. And he gave me the Fitz. Because back in those days, YWAM had this great idea because they were very, uh, they were very progressive, I suppose, in a way. They liked to train YWAM teams to do something called the tambourine dance. And so to Bob Fitz, I Will Rejoice was the song. We had to learn the steps, shake the tambourine around. Had tassels on it, of course. And as a worship leader, I hate tambourines. And I don't hate the people who bring them randomly to church and try to play them off time from the rest of the band but it's awfully close to hatred. It's like, God forgive me. I got to West Africa, where it's a solemn Muslim culture. And I said to my leader, I said, you guys are nuts. Um, you want us men to step into this culture where it is entirely inappropriate for men to play a tambourine. Like that is... That is, the, the, the Arabic culture, right, the, the women wore, literally wear tambourines on their clothing. Little discs that clink together as they walk, and they have little finger tambourines, and their bracelets are tambourines, and everything is effeminate about the tambourine. I said, you guys want us to go and try to preach the gospel, and the first thing we're going to do is offend every single man here by acting effeminately. Well, it's what we do. I probably had more theology, better theology than my couple of leaders did actually back then. I wouldn't say that, but. <laughs> and so we did the first tambourine dance and the pastor of the church said, hey guys, please never do that again. <laughs> and I said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I don't even like dancing, let alone tambourine dancing, okay? Yes, I do have a deep wound that needs to be healed from tambourine playing people in churches. One of them broke my guitar one time. It's a long story for another day. Listen. It says you've got to judge for yourself. Paul's saying, look, here's what I think. Now you've got to make up your mind. You have to decide. And this is true for churches. We have to decide what we're going to do. A church leader has to decide where we're going to go. A leader has to decide in a family, in a household. This is our core value. This is who we're going to become. You can't be everything to all people. You can't do everything for everyone. So you have to do what you can for one person and then the next person. You can't, you can't have all the cultural solutions. Generation Church needs to be Generation Church, and all the other churches in this city need to be who they are and run in the lane God has given them. Nothing has changed. There will be people who are so offended with me, they'll never come back here. And there are some of you who are offended somewhere else, and you've come here. And maybe you're offended now, and you're not going to come back. That's okay. I can, I can live with it. We're better together. 
Why fight with half an army? Why place limitations on the finer half of creation? Why? I will say this about this passage and the passages Paul talks to. Women need to be women. It's inappropriate for a woman to come up and start acting like a man. If Amy came up and started to try to preach like I preach or prophesy like I prophesy, it would be weird. It would be inappropriate, in fact. She has to be who God has created and called her to be. She has to walk in the metron of grace that God has appointed for her life. I have to stay in my lane, walk in what God has called me. And here's the beautiful, wonderful, amazing miracle of what God does. He joined us together to walk together and work together. We are, we are one flesh. You know, the book of Galatians says in 3.28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, does that mean that the Bible says there's no gender? No, there's very much gender in the Bible. Two of them. Very clearly. And if, here, here's the thing, guys. That's the words of Jesus. And here's what I love. Galatians 3.28 takes us in the spirit in Jesus and says, hey, men and women, slave, free, Jew, Greek, that you're not different anymore. You're actually the same. You're one in Christ. And then you say, well, that's fine. That's the spirit. But what about the roles? What about the genders? Jesus is the one who said from the beginning, God created the male and female. In his image, he created them. And for this reason... A young man is going to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two of them will become one flesh. What do we see here? We see the book of Galatians, Paul writing to the churches in Galatia that you are no longer all different, but in Christ you're one together. And then we have Jesus on the other side in the flesh saying, men and women, you are joined together as one flesh. And it goes further. And don't let anyone separate what God has joined together. So Galatians says we're one in the spirit of Jesus. Jesus says we're one in the flesh, in marriage. And this is why Paul then had to come back and write to the church something like this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Because Paul was telling them, hey, you're free. You're not under the law, you're under grace. You guys are the same. You're one in Christ. Boss, you're, you're not the boss when it comes to Sunday morning. And worker, you're not just the worker when it comes to Sunday morning. You're brothers in Christ, you're sisters in Christ. And so some of the workers, some of the people who were bond servants were like, well, that's awesome. I don't have to do what he says come Monday morning. Paul's going, no. Back it up a little bit. I'm not giving you permission to be a rebel. I'm not giving you permission to be dishonest or dishonoring. You need to work for him like you're working for Jesus. And you need to appreciate the guidance that's being offered as the early church figures out its way through, an issue, through issues of culture and catastrophe. I'm going to close right up. Um, worship team, why don't you come back? Um, man, I could, this could be a book. I'm going to give you just a few more examples as we try to land this thing this morning. The book of Judges, chapter 4, we encounter a woman named Deborah. This is, this is, this is just me wrapping this up, trying to put a bow on it for you uh, so that you see where women were at all through Scripture. 
Um, but Judges chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says, Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lipidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She was what? She was leading Israel. Not just her family. No, she was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And there the Israelites went up to have, her dis have their disputes settled. Deborah was both judge and prophet. She was both the civil and the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. And this was before the corrupt reign of kings that Israel so badly wanted to be a part of. Deborah was appointed by God to be a judge, a prophet, a ruler, a leader of God's people in the pure way. You say, what do you mean? Well, it's maybe another talk for another time, but God warned them. He said, hey, you think you want a king like all the other nations want kings, and it's not going to go well for you. God's system was better. Um... New Testament, Acts 2.17, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Some people will jump up and say, well, that's not teaching or preaching from the pulpit. That's not being in authority. Well, come on. Anyone, anyone. Anyone who comes claiming to speak the words of God is doing so in authority. You can't prophesy and not be in authority. The whole, the whole point of prophecy is to speak the words of God, the encouraging word of God to the, to the body of believers. And the Bible says your sons and your daughters are going to move in that gift. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, dynamic duo, married couple in the book of Acts. They actually traveled around and helped the church in several different places. Paul was a very close friend of Priscilla and Aquila, even so much that he actually called her nickname was Priscilla. Her formal name was actually like Prisca. And, and so he was very, very close. Today. Did you know that, that, that Priscilla and Aquila were the ones who got Apollos like all the way into the real gospel? Because he was preaching and it was pretty good. Apollos was seeing people happen. He was a gifted evangelist, anointed preacher. And, and they came upon him one day and they were like, well, that's pretty darn good, but he's missing some things. So Priscilla, a woman, and her husband, Aquila, pulled Apollos aside and taught him and taught him what the apostles were teaching the church. And Apollos went on. Paul references, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gets... God brought the increase. Well, she, wasn't in, she was in authority. She preached. She taught. One of the greatest men in the early church. Um, they owned several houses and several, they were affluential people. They were, I want to bring you to Romans 16 real quick. Romans 16, 1 to 16, there's a list of people in, in church. If I could tell you one thing, always pay attention to lists of people in the Bible. It's actually important. God is doing amazing and mysterious things in these lists of people when you really begin to study it out. But here, here, here it is, and just try to pick out the, the girl names if you can. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon, a deacon of the church of Centrea, 
I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. Co-workers means my co-laborers, my counterparts, my equals in Christ. They risked their lives for me, not only I, but for all the churches and the, of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. What does that mean? They were pastoring. Greet my dear friends Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. Another husband and wife team, outstanding among the apostles. There actually are, are some, some theologians actually point to that as being Junia was the first known female apostle. Greet Ampladius, my dear friend of the Lord. Greet Urbanus. He was a guy who worked in the city. I know it was a dad joke, but come on. <laughs> Urbanus. Oh, jeez. I'm losing you. I'm losing you. Greet Urbanus, our co-work in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Astrobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. He was very self-absorbed. Now you're coming. Thank you. All right. Greet Tryphena and Trophosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Paresis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Ascrintus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogius, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send their greetings. I just read you through this list, and there's a lot of women in that list. And here's what I want you to understand that list is. That list is a list of pastors who were serving in the region. These people were pastoring churches. It, guys, do you understand that Rome didn't just have one big church? It had a whole bunch, probably hundreds, maybe even thousands by the end, of church plants that were meeting in houses all over the place. And the leaders of those churches were not just men. They were men and they were women who were allowed to prophesy, who were allowed to teach, who were considered to be equals and among the apostles. you got to just read the whole book before you marry yourself to a strong opinion. You can't take it away from them. They're listed as co-workers with Paul. And some would say, well doesn't say they preached or had authority, and all I can say to you is you keep telling yourself that. I can tell you that if, if Pastor Amy and I ended up in the Bible somehow because some apostle was like, and greet Travis and Amy, I would not be brave enough to try and take that away from her because I know what she does. I know what she does. And if you keep telling yourself that, oh, that's women, blah, blah, what good is it doing you? 
Like, let me ask you, men, if you're of the opinion that women can't do, can't do, can't do, what are you going to do when your anointed daughter grows up? Like, what are you going to do with that? What I have observed is a lot of people's theology changes. Because it wasn't very right. Guys, the Bible is going to make a mess of your doctrine. And that's a good thing. That's not going to take you off to hell. It's not going to confuse you. It's not going to distract you and make you something unholy. If you submit yourself to it, if you submit yourself to the process that the Spirit of God wants to have us in. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. I'm gonna, this is it. This is the last one I'm going to give you. And, and there is. There's more. I, we could, man. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I want you to know that in that Ephesians chapter 4, what we call the five-fold ministry, those women from the list I read you in the book of Romans, they're numbered in that five-fold. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. After all of this, I'm convinced that women are allowed to be in virtually every role. It's been my conviction for many, many years. And just so you know, I was raised in a church where women weren't permitted to speak initially. It was 1950s-style Pentecostal. And the first few women they tried to deal with, bringing them on staff, by the way, didn't work out very well. <laughs> like, real bad. And as I grew up, I read my Bible, I prayed, and I kept on seeking God. Forgive me even just for taking the minute to say this. When Amy and I were dating, this was an issue that had to be worked out. I saw her. I saw that she was anointed. She was called. And, and at that time, she couldn't even order ketchup at a restaurant. Like, I'm, that's how shy she was. And men, I want you to hear that because what we are called to do as men is to live and lead. If you want to use the word rule, that's fine. But we are to do that in such a way that our wives can walk in this world and do anything God calls them to do. There's way too many men who, this is their leadership style. It's what one of Mara's terrible basketball refs calls airplane defense, which isn't a real basketball call. Um, they call this the air, airplane defense. And this is what I see some men doing, though. Stay back, woman. Stay back in your place. Man of God, if your wife is trying to pass you spiritually, you're not running hard enough. Man of God, if your wife is looking smarter than you biblically, you're not reading enough. Man of God, if your children are surpassing you and your little girls are becoming more dynamic in their spiritual walk than you are, it's your fault. Don't hold them back because you're being weak. Man of God, hear me this morning. Stand up and make a way for them. Become a better leader. Chase, pursue, grab onto the anointing. Grab a hold of God. Grab a hold of His Spirit. Say, I'm not going to let you go until I level up with you. 
Because it's actually not an issue of women in ministry. It's an issue of what men are doing. Or not doing. So, um, this was the attraction of the early church. Hedonistic, pluralistic, paganistic, grossinistic, wildinistic, orgies, drunkenness, pedophilia, relationships were a mess. And here comes the early church. What was it? Men and women serving together. Men and women standing together leading the church. Men and women prophesying. Sons and daughters prophesying. Children being raised up in healthy homes, healthy relationships. And that, that is what was attractive to the pagan in the early church. What are those weird Christians doing? You know, at first, Christianity was written off as a religion for slaves and women. That's what the Romans thought about it. Hey, it'll go away. No big deal. It's for slaves and women. Yeah, until the culture started to take notice that who God had joined together as one flesh, who were equal in the spirit, what they were seeing God do. Okay. Hopefully that's the longest preach of 2023. Let's stand. I'm not even sure how to close the service today. But I want to say this. If you're, a, if you're a woman who has just been wondering, like, can I, should I? Can I just... I'll just let me be let me be the spiritual dad today. It's, it's my role as pastor. Let me just say, yeah, you can. Can you do whatever you want? No, you can't do whatever you want. None of us can. But can you do what God is asking you? Yes, you can. To the little girls in our church, yes, you can. To the men in our church, you have to. You have to. Because if the men don't step up, if the men don't move ahead, it makes it horrible in the background, in the backfield. And I really hope it just sits well with you today. Okay. This is a hard one to close. You feel my pain? Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know who Jesus is. That means you don't know him to be the Lord of your life. That is the necessary thing for you to become saved. It's not just that Jesus died for your sins. It's, it's that he died so that you could be forgiven your sins and so that he could become Lord of your life. And nothing is going to come into alignment for you until you take that step. And we'd love to talk with you about what that looks like if we need to this morning. So you can come on up when we start singing this last song. I'd encourage you today, if you would like prayer because you feel like you've been stuck, maybe you've been in this church, and even though you see that we have women doing things, if you feel stuck, ladies, maybe you should come today and let us just pray for you. Let's lay hands on you and pray for you. Man, if you've been feeling stuck, maybe, maybe it's time you come and just... Let the Holy Spirit give you the new perspective.
new perspective on some old verses that need to come into alignment with all the other verses. It's like the worst altar call ever. That's what I got. Let me pray for you. We're going to sing this last song. If you'd like ministry this morning, please come. Let us pray with you. Father, I just pray right now, Lord, that for everything that we talked about, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to guide us into everything that's true. And so, Lord, today I'm praying that there would be a shift that takes place in the hearts of people in this church. God, that you would shift our thinking, that you would shift our emotion even, that you would shift our habit to something that reflects all of your word and not just one part here or there. I ask for new grace for us, God, as we try to be the church you want us to be in this wild culture that we're in today. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your presence. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.